A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20-year warranty and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about CanadaLand and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures. And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support CanadaLand. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a CanadaLand supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com join. And thank you. Mike D'Souza, Montreal-based managing editor of the Narwhal and former environment-slash-energy reporter for the National Post and National Observer. Welcome to Shortcuts. Thanks, Jonathan. Good to be with you. Today on the show, Meta is clomping around like it owns the place again. Perhaps Canada's famously effective competition bureau can bring it to heel. And when a billion trees don't get planted in Canada, do they make a sound? Welcome to Shortcuts, where we talk shit about the news. I'm Jonathan Goldsby. This episode is brought to you by Bethany Gibson, Amanda Nobis, Inbar Abrahami Saraf, KCD, Frankie Morrell, Maureen Barrow, Nina Vershagen, and Wes. Hi, I'm Wes, a theater artist splitting time between Toronto and Halifax, and I support Canada Land because they're telling you the story that the rest of the media just isn't. I love Commons and Canada Land back. And unlike most people who might insert a salty comment about Jesse Brown here, I actually kind of like him. Matt. 
Meta says it will officially end news access for Canadians on its Facebook and Instagram platforms. It said it would, and now it's pulling the trigger. The company announced today it's officially starting that process, which will take a few weeks. News Media Canada, the CBC, and the Canadian Association of Broadcasters, which includes Global News, are urging Canada's Competition Bureau to investigate what they're calling Meta's abuse of its dominant position. So they're going through with it. Meta, that is. After a few years of prostrating themselves for past sins and abuses and wanting to be seen as a good corporate citizen, the parent company of Facebook and Instagram has cycled back around to not giving a damn about what anyone thinks about their attitude to democracy and has begun blocking the sharing of Canadian news content on their platforms. In response to Canadian government legislation, reads the error message when you try to post a link on Facebook, news content can't be shared. The Facebook pages of news sites appear scrubbed of content, replaced with a stark no-post-available notice. Over on Instagram, it's a similar deal, even though there aren't generally links, just images. Mike, what's your experience with the Narwhal been in this regard? You know, we had a warning uh, maybe a few weeks ago with Instagram. We had like a warning indicating that we wouldn't be able to use the platform. And uh, one of our, our audience engagement editors was attempting to post and, and was restricted. So we've had that experience. And then, of course, like it seems like like earlier this week, complete access has been has been removed in terms of being able to post directly through the Facebook platform. I think it's still possible to do it through, uh, I forget if it's the ad manager or one of the other tools, but overall is restricted. I, I did a check yesterday also to look at U.S. outlets, and U.S. outlets are also restricted now, and, and we can't see them in, in Canada. So I was looking up, like, the New York Times, uh, oh. looked up Fox News, I looked up even, like, a far-right site like Breitbart, and I saw that all of them are are actually restricted. So it's news in general oh. right now in Canada that, that users, if they're based in Canada, and I presume if they're not using a VPN, won't be able to access. Oh, that's interesting. I mean, Google was saying it would just be like when Google was threatening something similar, they were saying American sites would be visible in Canada. And I was wondering, well, what's what's the first Canadian publication going to be that starts like a U.S. mirror site? Uh, oh, I didn't realize that about, about with, with Meta blocking U.S. as well. Because I guess as long as Elon Musk continues to thrash about at Twitter or X or whatever it's called this week, Facebook seems content that it's no longer the most cartoonishly villainish of the major social networks, despite being the one that's facilitated at at least one literal genocide. I mean, I've talked before on the show about how their threatened hissy fit, now a real hissy fit, isn't that different from what you see companies at all levels do when they're displeased about something that would affect how they conduct business, whether that's taxation or unionization, or as in this case, regulation, with a sort of echoes of taxation. The Online News Act, which passed in the spring and you know is yet to be enacted because they're working on regulations, the Online News Act would force them and Google to cut deals with Canadian news publications in exchange for facilitating access to content. And so Facebook has said, fine, we just won't facilitate access to content. Mike, you're you're more enthusiastic about the legislation than a lot of people who've appeared on this show, and certainly it's other host. Could you talk about why you like it? I want to give space for that, first of all. Uh, sure, yeah, thanks. Yeah, first I'll, I'll refrain from labeling anyone as a villain here. And, and I will, like say that the legislation itself, I think I would agree with many who say that there are flaws in the legislation and whether, you know, I'm not I'm not saying it's perfectly drafted or written. What I like about it is the intent, the the purpose of the legislation, which it says in the legislation itself, it's to enhance fairness in the digital news marketplace. Particularly references 
enhancing that fairness where there is a significant power imbalance between the tech companies and the news businesses themselves. So the legislation has good intent, whether it gets to where it wants to go and, and spells that out in the appropriate way. That's, I think, certainly up for debate. Yeah, in, in, in general, I, like I support like where we have a system now where you have some large companies that have used content from news sites over the years. They've actually said they wanted it. They wanted to use this content so that its users or their users could have a better experience and a product where they're getting access to more or a wide range of information. Over the years, they use that information to build up their platforms in terms of gathering user data, understanding who people are, just expanding the reach so that they essentially became one-stop shops for anyone searching for any information. And then now that they have access to those users, they're in a position, in a dominant position in the marketplace where perhaps they can afford to just cut off access to that information and just they're making a gamble that their users are going to stay. Personally, I have some issues with, I think it was founded on a fundamentally dishonest premise about stealing news, but I think, I mean, it, it, what it is, it's a, re, it's a redistribution of wealth, and that makes me in favor of it, frankly. Correcting a power imbalance, redistributing wealth from companies that are taking it out of this country in terms of online advertising dollars and trying to put it back into things that are hurting, I am very much in favor of that, even if I have some issues with the premise upon which it was initially constructed. But I'm almost bored of my own opinions about it. But I, my question, I guess, is now, like, well, what is the appropriate response to what Meta is doing? One of my favorite writers, the American labor reporter and Gawker alumnus Hamilton Nolan, offered a post on his Substack the other day that carried a three-word headline, do it fuckers. For him, the short-term pain to the news industry of news disappearing from Facebook and from Google would be worth the long-term positives of no longer counting tech platforms as middlemen to news, forcing publishers to find new paths to directly connect with audiences rather than what he called the toll roads offered by Meta and Google. I mean, maybe. Another possible type of response is the one offered by the Coalition of News Media Canada, which is the Newspaper Trade Association in Canada, mostly newspaper, as well as the Canadian Association of Broadcasters, which is the group of Association of Private Broadcasters, as well as the CPC. They jointly filed a complaint to Canada's Competition Bureau on Tuesday. Per the Competition Act, if any group of six people, 18 years of age or older, make statutory declarations that they believe a breach of Canada's competition law has occurred, the competition commissioner has to at least begin to look into it. Mike, in this case, I think you were one of the six people, 18 or older. What was, what was that like? <laughs> I can confirm that I am 18 or older. And yes, I, I did sign uh, an affidavit on behalf of the, the Narwhal in support of this, uh, in support of this complaint. Yeah, I think for, for the reasons that I outlined earlier and that you've touched on as well, like this is a market issue where there's a dominant player. It's taking action in ways that can harm either current competitors or stifle or prevent others from competing with it. In again, in, in my opinion, uh, the competition bureau should have a look at that. And I was actually interested to see, like in some of the coverage in the National Post, for example, yesterday, um, and I think in La Presse as well, both quoted the Competition Bureau saying that they had already started to look at it even before the complaint. So I think they're fully seized with with this issue. I mean, it goes beyond Facebook. I mean, you, you look at in the U.S., you have the Department of Justice and attorneys general across the country that are also looking at Google essentially for their dominant control of digital advertising. Google now controls 
the digital tool that nearly every major website publisher uses to sell ads on their websites. That's a direct quote from the U.S. Department of Justice in their complaint. So I think there's similar issues here with both companies in terms of what they have. I've heard people argue that the legislation might disrupt the free flow of information. I've heard people say the legislation, Bill C-18, the Online News Act, is going to require companies to pay for links. You know, both of those are based on my reading of the bill, incorrect. There's no mention of the word links in, in the bill. I mean, there's no mention of the word links, but I think, what, what let me pull it up. Yeah, I mean, it requires them to negotiate a fair deal and pay for, for, for the use of material or, or allowing it to be yeah, used. Yeah, facilitating, facilitating access, I think, is the, how it frames it, or making yeah. available news content, which it describes as, you know, could be reproducing uh-huh. a portion of news content or giving access, facilitating access to it, including through index aggregation, which I take to mean a link. I'm not sure what else that could be. I mean, it's not a payment per link necessarily. I mean, whatever they want. Yeah, no, and I think like that is like the suggestion that there is a, you're going to quantify paying for links and we don't know that that will happen. It's not in the legislation. It could be theoretically in in regulations, although based on the criticism of, of this idea of paying for individual links, I I I would be surprised if that winds up in the legislation. But to the other point about like the free flow of information and disrupting the free flow, when you have a major platform that is controlling all the in and out of advertising, when you have a major platform that is controlling how news appears, like it's not like 20, 30, 40 years ago when you can go to the library and search for something and then get information that's useful you're not getting a free flow of information. You're getting what artificial intelligence tells you or is proposing or suggesting to you based on, I think, a principle of like it's content that is designed to either be rage-inducing, designed to be polarizing. That is the information that people find on these platforms more often than not. And I don't think that that is a free flow of information or that it's fair to call that a free flow of information. No, I mean, absolutely. But I mean, I guess part of the tricky thing is to obtain from the Competition Bureau orders, you know, for example, to stop them from doing this and to bargain in good faith. But I guess what's an example you can point to of where the Canada's Competition Bureau did act expeditiously to address an urgent situation? <laughs> I can't think of any. I mean, you know, given the fact that like that example I brought up of the U.S., you know, Department of Justice, like there's no public statements yet that regulators are looking at that in, in, in Canada in the same way or advanced to the same level that the DOJ has has gone. You know, we, we know of cases where the Competition Bureau was looking at collusion or price fixing for bread prices at grocery stores. We know of examples of of allegations of price fixing for for gasoline prices at the pumps. And, you know, in both of those cases, it took like years before investigations started and were concluded. So I'm not enthusiastic about having to wait 10 years for the, if, if, if that's the case for the Competition Bureau to weigh into this. Yeah, if they start inquiry at all. You know, to be fair, like maybe, maybe they will determine that there is not a violation of the abuse of dominance rules. But, I mean, I'd like to see some swift action and, like, some form of intervention here, or at least 
providing some certainty about what the rules are or what the rules are not. I'm not sure whether the Competition Bureau has the resources it needs to be able to do that adequately and swiftly. Yeah, I mean, first they have to decide whether to even have an inquiry. I mean, this is sort of like the preliminary stage where we're looking at it and then they might decide to have an inquiry and we'll see how, you know, where that might go. Some insight, I was trying to wonder, like, beyond just their slowness and ineffectuality of Canada's Competition Bureau generally, I was, you know, certainly wondering, how does this fit into competition law? Because it clearly is like, I mean, how does it fit into like, the actual laws we have beyond just the bureaucratic structure of it? Vast Bednar, who's an expert on Canadian competition policy. She's at McMaster University. She's often on Canland's various shows, including Commons. She had a couple of tweets yesterday saying, you know, I get how it feels like an abuse of dominance, but on what grounds would they have market dominance with which to abuse? You tell me. That's why it could be valuable to pay legislative attention to business behaviors writ large. Uh, it's like when Twitter was blocking links to competitors. Is that just content moderation? And she pointed to a Globe column she wrote back in December where she argued that Canada's competition laws aren't really adequate for dealing with behavior that's clearly anti-competitive, like when Musk was blocking all links to Mastodon or other platforms, but which doesn't necessarily meet the current threshold of abuse of market dominance. And I think that seems to be the key thing here is what counts as market dominance. So like Meta, you know, clearly has dominance in the online advertising business, but is it also in the news business? I mean, you are, you know, they act as a gatekeeper, certainly <laughs> controlling the flow of information, as you explained. And the complaint points to the Competition Bureau's, you know, guidelines for on this, which says, you know, a company doesn't have to be a participant in a given market for them to exert control over it. So like, you know, Meta does not have to be themselves a news publisher in order for them to have control over news, the news publishing marketplace. But the bar for that is like, they, you know, the Bureau has to weigh whether alternatives exist as well as the extent to which a service is necessary to compete. So meaning that like, Presumably, if it gets to an inquiry, what the or even before, what the Bureau would look at is, well, is it possible to exist as a news publisher without Meta and all their alternatives to that? And I feel like that seems like an uphill battle. Yeah. So, like, I, I think a few things in terms of my thoughts on that. Facebook and Google and some other platforms, perhaps as well, have become de facto publishers of, of information, or I think that argument can be made. And, and lawyers can argue various points about what the competition law says or doesn't say. I think the argument can be made that they have become publishers. They have become competitors. If someone is going online to search for information, let's say they're searching for information about climate change. Let's say they're searching for information about vaccine safety. They might find in a search or in their feed access to various content about those topics. Now, you know, Facebook and Google might say, well, we're not in the news business or people are searching for stuff. They're not necessarily searching for news. But, you know, Google themselves would say that if someone is doing those searches, they don't count that as the only a fraction of users are actually searching for news. And maybe Facebook uses similar arguments. But if you're searching for that information and the best source of information is credible, responsible journalism, then you are blocking access or restricting access or have some degree of control over access to that material in the marketplace. And, and so that's an economic issue. And I think that's what our competition laws or antitrust laws in the U.S. are, are designed or should be designed to look at. Now, this story has been going on, I mean, for a long time with any profitable industry, 
whenever regulation gets proposed to put like some limits on the power that they have or that they've been able to develop in the marketplace. If if there's been limits placed on or, you know, attempts to crack down on, you know, at the Narwhal, we report on environmental issues. So regulations to restrict pollution, to restrict carbon pollution. Companies argue against that and say it's unreasonable, but those limits need to be there for the larger society. And then, you know, you have a debate about, like, are the individual rights of a company or of a person, their individual right to make money, does that outweigh the the rights of the collective? And that's also a political argument or debate that some people will have. This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens. HE1 is designed to help you bridge the gap between your current diet and the nutrients your body needs. With 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients, it's a simple way to provide your body with the nutrients it craves. You can just add one scoop of AG1 to a glass of water and stir it around, and that's it. I'm probably going to take some after this recording because I haven't had a lot of sleep, and I think that would make me feel better. I like to take AG1 because it can be a really helpful addition to my podcast recording routine, especially for those days when I'm falling short of my nutrient intake, which happens to be most days I'm recording podcasts. I don't... uh, eat as well or as consistently as I'd like to. So AG1 is about making nutrition, uh, you know, a a bit easier. If you're looking for a simpler and cost-effective supplement routine, Athletic Greens is giving you a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. Go to athleticgreens.com slash CanadaLand. That's athleticgreens.com slash CanadaLand. Check it out. Mike, as you know very well, since you brought several, we'd like to duly note things on the show. What would you like to note duly today? As we're recording this, I think the the Auditor General in Ontario is is releasing quite an explosive report. Oh, I haven't seen it yet. Tell me, tell me, tell me. <laughs> so about the green belt, which I think just highlight like the value of reporting, and I'll do a plug for for my colleague Emma McIntosh at the Narwhal and Nor Javed at the, the Toronto Star and, and and many others who did some very important reporting about how the decision was made by the Ontario government to carve out parts of the Greenbelt, a protected area in Ontario, uh, more or less around the greater Toronto area, and whether, you know, who benefited. They reported on land deals that were struck right before the government announced its decision where, you know, people bought property for uh, certain amounts and suddenly the value of that land exploded once it was clear that development of housing was possible. So the report today links a political staffer in the office of the housing minister, you know, saying that, that this staffer was involved in directing which lands would be selected. Oh, wow. There's a mention of the influence of developers and discussions between the developer and this chief of staff regarding which lands would be would be removed from the green belt. So I think, you know, like, you know, if it weren't for that media reporting by the Narwhal, by the Toronto Star, and some other outlets like the Globe and Mail and the CBC also have uh, have done some reporting on it, which I uh, would also like to denote, you know, that that is what prompted a bunch of different investigations, including this AG report. Mm-hmm. It's the sort of case where, as we've, I'm almost the co-host of Wag the Dog, which is our entire politics show, and I think how we've described it is, as journalists, we're not going to directly or outright use the word corruption for all various reasons. But if this were a situation where the liberals had done the same thing, or the NDP had done the same thing, it's a safe bet that Doug Ford himself would be liberally throwing around the word corruption to describe it. 
Duly noted. I'd like to note, Duly, Ferry Creek, which is sort of starting to heat up again. I mean, previously, when a, the situation there, the blockades there south of Vancouver Island swelled up, climax in 2021, it became one of the, or if not the biggest acts of civil disobedience in Canadian history. And there was a sort of a deferral of further logging there for a couple of years that was was going to expire this past spring. It seems like it's been extended for another few years, but things are ramping up again with more calls from for people to join new blockades. I think, I believe like a big wooden owl sculpture has been erected. I mean, you know, chances are we're going to see a repeat of some of the stuff we saw previously with the RCMP, you know, having its uh, very peculiar relationship with journalists, which usually takes the form of, you know, their questions about the rights of the media or CP respecting the media. There are court decisions. Judges make comments or outright decisions about how, you know, and finger wag the RCMP is saying, you know, you got to respect the media. The RCMP more or less keeps doing what they've been doing the whole time. Then it's up to people to go to court to actually try to enforce the orders that judges have already made, which is actually a nice way to bring it around to what you and the Narwhal are doing alongside Amber Bracken, where you're suing the RCMP over a similar situation in Wet'suwet'en, um, suing them for wrongful arrest, wrongful detention, violation of her charter rights. And that was, I guess, filed earlier this year. And I think it's set for trial or tentatively set for trial next October. What's uh, what's going on with that? So, Jonathan, I would say stay tuned on this. I think there will be some developments that we'll see on this file. I'm not positive about the timing, and you never know with court cases on when you know stuff can constantly be delayed and there's often back and forth. So the actual start of a trial date, I'm not sure of, but I would just say stay tuned. I expect some developments very soon on this. Julie, note it. And Mike, I understand you have something else you'd like to note, Julie. Yeah. And, and again, I'm, I'm doing some shameless plugs of my colleagues here at the Narwhal, but, but Carl Meyer has been doing some exceptional reporting about the Pathways Alliance of, of oil sands companies and, and uncovered through government documents, how this alliance of six large companies that operate in the oil sands or what they're doing behind the scenes in meetings with government is trying to find ways to either delay or weaken any rules to that force them to move fast on cutting carbon. So whereas this like alliance of companies, they're publicly running these big advertising campaigns. I think there was a Super Bowl ad. If you have questions about where Canada's oil sands industry stands on climate change, you're not alone. It's time to clear the air. They're claiming that they have solutions and that they can achieve net zero carbon emissions by 2050. What they're telling government is that some of the stuff, some of the technology is still on the shelf. It's not actually readily available. So this is stuff that Carl has found. But this Alliance, like they have systematically refused to answer any of his questions. They just like ghost him, basically don't answer what he's asking specifics about, you know, this is what you said. Can can you explain like how this contrasts with what you're putting out in advertising? And at a time when, you know, in particular, their advertising offensive, and I can call it an offensive, it includes a bunch of sponsored content in, you know, media outlets like like the, the National Post. You know, they're putting stuff out there, they're paying media outlets, and they don't actually want to answer tough questions and and address what is the reality. Duly noted. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. 
uh, it's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody, half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. And I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool. doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer, and it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. Last Wednesday, August 2nd, was a momentous day in Canadian politics. At about 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific, there was an announcement that shook the foundations of our understanding of just how seriously Canada's rulers take their own vows. At a park in Surrey, Jonathan Wilkinson, who's the Natural Resources Minister and now also the Energy Minister, announced that the government was not only making progress on its pledge to plant 2 billion trees by 2030, they were in fact ahead of schedule. And that announcement was made roughly an hour after the Prime Minister and his wife announced their separation by Instagram, which I guess still allows news, just not from news outlets. This came as a bit of a surprise, a pleasant surprise, after many rounds of bad press about how the Liberals were on track to fall far short of this cornerstone promise from the 2019 campaign. I mean, back in the spring in particular, the media was all over them, following a report by Canada's Environment Commissioner Jerry DeMarco. They did have milestones for each year. They're relatively modest in the first two years. The first year they made it just about uh, close enough. Second year, not even close. But I mean, this has been a thing going on for a long time. Even like nearly two years ago, like the sluggish progress is already fodder for this hour as 22 minutes. What we're going to do is plant two billion trees. None of these trees have been put in the ground. But don't worry, we took care of it. Welcome to the Justin Trudeau Broken Promises Memorial Forest where each dead promise gives life to a new tree. Last week, however, it was a good news story with the Canadian press leading with, Canada's plan to plant 2 billion trees by 2030 is ahead of schedule, but mitigating the effects of climate change is as important as adapting to them, says Natural Resources Minister Jonathan Wilkinson. And, you know, the CBC saying Ottawa announces its 2 billion tree program is surpassing targets. Mike, did you catch any of that last week? I did. I did. There there was a very interesting framing of that story in, in, in those media outlets you mentioned. 
when when you first saw it, did, was there anything strike you as did it strike you as plausible? Uh, yeah. So the way the way it was portrayed, I mean, like I had been aware of other stories in the past that had been critical of the government for for the promise and 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 the fact that you know uh, like a even more than a year after like not a single tree had been planted or something like that and and the government was very late and didn't really have a plan it was kind of scrambling or improvising on the file so it came across as a positive good news story oh that suddenly they've reversed course and they've fixed things and they're back on track and and maybe the promise was pretty good after all that was certainly the impression from that initial announcement in the coverage yeah and then as paul wells brought to the attention of those of us in English Canada, anyway. Le Devoir had a front-page story in, on Saturday, a headline, Deux milliards d'arbres à quelques millions près. Pronunciation is probably terrible. My understanding is it translates as basically two billion trees, give or take a few million, which pointed out that, you know, buried in the government's announcement of, you know, these, they're way ahead of schedule, was the notice that they were starting to count trees that were planted under a different pre-existing program called the Low Carbon Economy Fund. Or in other words, they had just sort of changed how they had counted all of a sudden. Previously, they were just tracking like how many things under just two billion tree program is an actual program they have. And then Low Carbon Economy Fund was another program. Suddenly, they decided to combine them. Jonathan Wilkinson was on Power and Politics on Tuesday afternoon, and Heather Hiscox uh, asked him about it. And that's a program the government had explicitly excluded before. Why are you now including them? Well, Heather, with due respect, that's actually just not true. Uh, when we announced the Two Billion Trees program, we did indicate that there were other programs adjacent to this program that were planting trees that would eventually be counted in this program. One of those was the Low Carbon Economy Fund. Um, so we've been very clear from the beginning that those were part of the two billion trees. Basically, he just says, no, we, we, were always, we were always counting these as part of this other program. Like, it's what you'd expect. <sighs> yeah, I think, like, first, I just want to, like, congratulate the excellent reporting of Boris Pru and uh, Alexia Riobel from, from Le Devoir, like, for doing, like, a good fact check. And, you know, that's the role of journalism. And that's, that's, that's the part of journalism that is so important to democracy. You know, when we talk about misinformation, sometimes there's misinformation that comes from government in, in terms of what they say, in terms of what they don't say. And, and so journalists play such an important role uh, in fact checking. And, and I, I very much am in awe and, and think that the, the Lit of Well has done great work here. The government actually, and I think, you know, in, in, in Paul Wells's column, he pointed out that the government actually had previously said that it had separated those programs in counting. And now, I mean, what the government is saying now doesn't really match up with what it has previously said. And it is doing some creative accounting here, and that's never a good sign in any policy or any assessment of a policy. Yeah, I was playing through all the, all their old news releases, including the one that Paul Wells cited. And it does get a weird, weirdly muddy in a way that it's hard to say. Like in that one, the one he was citing, there was like a series of bullet points saying, like, these are all the other programs that we're doing. And that was the 2020 news release and then like a 2021 news release. They counted this other program as being incremental to the two billion trees, which I take as being part of it. But it's just, it almost refocuses attention on the question of why two billion trees. Two billion trees. You've probably heard us share that number before. 
It's part of our plan for a clean, green future. And whether that's actually good or smart policy, because, you know, there are a lot of ways to do tree planting wrong. There are a lot of ways that weirdly, counterintuitively, can actually make things worse. If you plant the wrong species somewhere, if you have a monoculture, if you, you know, plant trees with dark-colored leaves over, over land that was previously light-colored, it can absorb more heat and actually, you know, cause an area to heat up. But even if you do all of that correctly, there's the question of, is it drawing attention away or focus away from actual, much more immediate solutions to climate change, to eliminating carbon emissions? If there were two billion trees, that would probably be pretty great by 2050 if they're all done well. But in the meantime, you know, all kinds of companies in greenwashing and stuff, but certainly Trudeau and specifically in how he framed it initially. I mean, he announced the program back in the 2019 campaign, I believe immediately after he had met with Greta Thunberg, uh, who, you know, as she does, gave him quite a hard time for all the shitty climate stuff he's they've done, you know, buying pipelines and such. And said, oh, no, we're, we're going to be planting two billion trees. I think, Jonathan, like greenwashing is a good word here. This was a flashy promise. It sounded really good. Everyone supports planting trees. And, and in theory, planting a tree is a good thing. But is it the most effective way to address the climate crisis, to address carbon emissions? Is it the most efficient solution? And, you know, as you correctly point out, are you doing it in a, in a way that supports and protects biodiversity? Or are you planting invasive species in the wrong areas? And, and quite often, if you want to do it the correct way, planting the trees where they belong or replacing trees that have been, that have been removed, it is incredibly costly to do it the right way. It's very cheap just to plant trees anywhere. And quite often there are cases, demonstrated cases, where they've been planted in the wrong places. So, you know, I've heard from within Natural Resources Canada, from within the department, within the program, when this promise was made, many people with expertise on the matter within Natural Resources Canada were were shocked from what I from from what I hear or surprised or just in disbelief that this was the promise. You know, no one had actually proposed this from the policy level from what I heard or thought that this would be a good idea. And then they were left scrambling to figure out how to help the government keep this this promise, which might have been well-intentioned, but was, well, I don't know, maybe well-intentioned is the wrong word because the intention was just to get votes, not necessarily good policy here. You know, that reflects like what we're seeing now with the double counting just reflects the fact that this was probably a bad promise and not the best way in terms of other things that could be done to address climate change. As a promise, it was a solid it was a solid promise, but not solid policy, necessarily. The Prime Minister's initial tweet during the campaign, or I guess the Liberal leader's initial tweet during the campaign, was, we'll plant two billion trees over the next 10 years. That's it. That's the tweet. Which, as far as political tweets go, like, okay, that's, that's, it's, it's okay. But it's like one of those things that the Liberals especially, all politicians do to some degree, but the Liberals especially are really great at figuring out what will sell at finding something that sounds lofty and ambitious and promising and, you know, with few possible negatives and just sort of offering that as a package before necessarily determining whether the, you know, it's actually a smart policy. The two billion trees in particular, though, it reminded me of this. There's this passage in Bill Murnau's book, which I should say I haven't 
read, I read about, and then I looked up the actual passage. Uh, his book, I should say, it's called uh, Where to From Here? A Path to Canadian Prosperity. This was just published, I think it was earlier this year, uh, where he talks about uh, the CERB benefit, the Canada Emergency Response Benefit, and basically how they went, you know, he and his staff in finance sort of went back and forth around all the different possible amounts and the pros and cons for what they should set it at. And the prime minister's office came back and said it should be $500 a week because the numbers, quote, sounded good. And he said, you know, time and again, they would have these low-level, high-level policy discussions, go back and forth to the PMO's office, and then find out that, in Morneau's words, the decision announced by the prime minister to the public was framed according to the impact the PMO believed it would make on the daily news cycle. Not super surprising. It's pretty evident from the government. But I did, once again, does it, you know, come back to this question of, like, when are you crafting a message to sell a policy versus crafting a policy to sell a message? And do both things actually count as governing? That's Shortcuts for this week. Thanks for joining me, Mike. Yeah, thanks very much, Jonathan. It was fun. We are on Twitter or slash X at CanadaLand. You can email me at jonathan at canadaland.com. I will, at the very least, read everything you send. Where can people find you, Mike? So it's less and less often that I actually write as, a, as an editor now, but uh, you can find content that sometimes I have my hands on at thenarwal.ca. This episode is produced by Aviva Lassard with additional production by Caleb Thompson. Our managing editor is Anit Ajofo, and our editor-in-chief is Karen Pugliese. Theme music is by so-called syndications by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. If you value this podcast, please support us. We rely on listeners like you paying for journalism. As a supporter, you'll get premium access to all our shows ad-free, including early releases and bonus content. You'll also get our exclusive newsletter, discounts on Candleland merch, invites and tickets to our live and virtual events, and more than anything, you'll be part of the solution to Canada's journalism crisis, and you'll be keeping our work free and accessible to everybody. Come join us now, click the link in your show notes, or go to candleland.com slash join. You can listen ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Thank you for supporting Candleland. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's going to get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.